you are listening to Sheep Might Fly, a podcast of serialised fiction written and read by Tansy Rayner Roberts. Our current serial is Musketeer Space, and we are, against all the odds, coming towards the end of this epic space opera adventure. I say coming towards the end. There's like eight chapters to go. Don't worry. Um, But it has been a very long haul. I appreciate uh, people hanging in there for this much longer than usual serial. Next year in 2023, I'm going to go back to my old system of alternating new stories, uh, new uh, serials of a novelette novella length mixed in with previously published stories. So it will continue much as before. Um, I did a Patreon poll a little while ago to basically help my supporters help me make a creative decision about which of the projects I have simmering away on that back burner I was going to bring forward as new podcast serials. And the one that actually won of of all of them was my Jane Austen and Dragons story, which will be happening next year. However, it's not going to be first, largely because due to the way my brain works and my recent (laughs) obsession with The Witcher, um, I've fallen back very much into an epic slash heroic fantasy mode of thinking, which is not a place I've visited for a while. And so I'm actually going to start Sheep Might Fly next year with um, a, a project I've had simmering away for so many years now, characters that I love, um, a concept that I love. It's, yeah, it's, it's been sitting there waiting for me to pay attention to it. And over the last couple of months, I've started paying attention to it again. So it's cooking. Uh, the series is called The River Divine. The novella that I'm going to be writing, uh, I'm pretty sure it's a novella. Let's hope. Uh, I don't have time for another novel next year. Uh, it, it's called Of Knives and Night Blooms. It is my uh, assassin's magical road trip, only it's on a river. Uh, I've been drawing a map. I'm quite into this story. <laughs> So this is where my attention is. So that's the plan. And then in the second half of 2023, after I've uh, broken up the new story with something delicious, I don't know yet, uh, I will be going on to my Jane Austen with Dragons retelling, which fell into my head quite recently, but has been also calling for some attention. Um, I'm not going to give you more details than that because I think it will be a delightful surprise when people figure out exactly what story it is that I'm telling with that one. It's going to be fun. Uh, yeah, so lots of new Tansy stories in 2023. Um, don't hesitate to get in touch if you have, for instance, favourite stories of mine you would like to see me include on the podcast. Um, so, yeah, I'm always happy reading stories. I do enjoy it. I have struggled to find time for it this year largely because I kind of lost my library, but I'm planning on taking it back this summer. Um, There'll be a battle. It's this whole thing. It's me battling against a lot of boxes. It's not a very heroic battle. Um, (laughs) Because of that, I have struggled to actually physically find places to record. I am recording right now in the first hour I've had alone in my house for the last three weeks. I don't know. So... Every time I get one of these to you, it is a gift and a miracle. And I hope you take it as such. Uh, Happy Christmas 
to those of you who celebrate happy new year to those who celebrate that at this time of year happy summer to people who don't live in tasmania it's snowed this week uh that's where we're at with climate right now in tasmania it's snowing in summer nothing makes sense anymore except that novella i wrote about valkyries <laughs> about it snowing in tasmania at christmas um I did not expect that to be predictive. So there we go. All right. Um, happy holidays. I am now going to read you, might be one of the last cheerful chapters for a while, of this lovely space opera. Don't blame me. Blame, as always, Alexandre Dumas. He knows what he did. Chapter 55. Snow and star nuns, but mostly snow. Then, Conrad gave Buck her space as much as possible. Villiers' house was her home, and he was conscious of the fact that he was an uninvited guest. Also, they weren't friends. They'd got along fine last Joyeux when she was the ambassador of Valor, palling around with Prince Alec and taking Chev's place to help the Emerald Knights complete their final season. They'd played flirtily together with Chev and Alec, and Conrad would always consider Buck to be a valued teammate. But that wasn't the same as friends. Buck had been acting strange since Conrad arrived. It was as if she were at least three different people. One, she was a tired, stressed new aristocrat who made political plans and looked over paperwork constantly, taking calls from supporters and colleagues who had opinions about Valor continuing to stay neutral in the war against the Sunkist. Two, she was a manic jock who would grab Conrad at the oddest times and haul him into her pool or her zero-G tank to compete, whether they were racing through the water or sparring with poles. Three, she was a ghost, a pale shade of herself, who muttered into her hair, darted away at any sign of company, and didn't eat or drink nearly enough. Buck was cracking up, and while there were plenty of staff and sycophantic friends hanging around Villiers' house to address her every need, Conrad seemed to be the only person who noticed what a state she was in. Chev should be here. Chev could deal with anything. Conrad was used to looking after one impulsive but mostly compliant prince consort, not this messy mishmash of what the hell is going on inside Buck's skull. It was the extra security, he told himself. That was enough to make anyone jumpy. It was almost a relief when the planetary marshal arrived, offering a discreet code at the door to prove her identity. The First Minister wishes me to revise the Duchess's security arrangements, she said, in a clipped voice. Conrad wondered if Marshall Felton even knew who he was. Dana had mentioned her as a potential ally in one of her recent texts. But did anyone official know why he was here in this house? I'll fetch her, Conrad said, making sure that Gus and Loney, two of Buck's oldest and longest-serving personal guards, escorted the marshal into the room of eggs. It probably had some schmancy posh person name like receiving salon or a guesting suite or whatever. 
But it was a blue room, off the main lobby, full of tiny jewelled eggs on stands that freaked Conrad the fuck out. It was also where Buck liked to meet official guests. Conrad hated that he even knew that. He wanted to go home. Paris was a yawning ache in his heart. And there was too much pollen on this planet. Pollen and oxygen and grass. Why did they need so much grass? He found Buck upstairs in one of her listless moods. She was wrapped in a dressing gown that was heavy on the starchy gold brocade. Marshal Felton's here, Conrad reported. Buck threw off the dressing gown, unconcerned that she was naked underneath, and walked to her enormous wardrobe, selecting a blue doublet embroidered with pearls. Felton's been involved in my lord's detention, she said, which Conrad already knew. I suppose she has news for me? Something about security checks, said Conrad, keeping his eyes aside while Buck dressed. He was used to being treated as furniture by people like her. Alec was the only new aristocrat who'd ever treated him like a person, and even then, Alec had his moments of forgetting that Conrad wasn't a personified extension of his own needs. Do you want me to join you? No, sighed Buck, now dressed. She hadn't pushed a brush or a sonic wand to her tangled red-bronze hair in days, and it looked it. Meet me at the pool afterwards. We can swim laps to clear my head. Works for me. Conrad was not a fan of this planet and its oddly disconcerting gravity, but he could get behind swimming in water every day of the week. It was almost as good as being in the tank, which he also got to do every day. Yeah, there were worse prisons than the Duchess of Buckingham's personal estate. That asteroid tower, for instance. He shouldn't complain. Though if he never met that bastard Slate, or Milord, or whatever he called himself ever again, he would be too soon. Outside, Conrad peeled off his own clothes and stood in a pair of bright emerald trunks, poised to dive into the deep end of Buck's glorious pool. In the seconds before he hit the water, he heard the low boom of an arc ray discharging from inside the house. Now, yeah, there were worse prisons than the Church of All, Convent of the Carmeline, in the peaks of the Drift Mountains, but it was hard to imagine one colder. Conrad awoke with a gasp, as the sound of the arc ray shocked him out of the dream, like it always did. He wasn't even sure if what he had heard was the shot that killed Buck. Perhaps it was a chair hitting a wall. Or one of the shots that Gus and Loney got off in those last few moments. All he remembered now was plunging into the water. When he surfaced for air, the world had been different. This prison was also more comfortable than Slate's asteroid tower, but that wasn't saying much. Every time Conrad awoke in this place... He was wrenched by desperate homesickness all over again for the cosy artificial atmosphere of Lunar Palais and Paris Satellite. Even for the home he'd barely shared with his wife behind her workshop. Conrad would give anything to be back among his own people instead of here, 
hiding from an alien maniac in a freezing stone building in a snowy mountain range. A stone building with glass windows. Not temperature-controlled plexiglass. This was the freezing, breakable, old-school kind of glass. It let in drafts. Also, there were star nuns. To be fair, the star nuns were pretty great. Conrad dressed quickly, layering tunics and extra wool sleeves before putting on the heavy hooded scarf. The nuns insisted all men wear within their walls for modesty. Breakfast was served in the sharing hall on the far side of the frosted courtyard. Conrad took a deep breath and pulled his hood over his face as he walked over the slippery flagstones towards the smell of food. A discreet cough alerted him to the presence of the extremely tiny and elderly sister Ursa, about to make her own trek across the courtyard. Conrad doubled back and offered her his arm. Good boy, she said, patting his cheek. She allowed him to help her across the hall. After the icy air, it almost felt warm inside, though the high ceiling to allow better access to the constellations at night let in far more cold than Conrad himself would have liked. Oh, for a space station. Conrad had never been cold in Paris or on Luna Palais. Cold never entered the equation there. As they approached the tables of food, Sister Ursa released her hold on him and darted towards a prime spot of bench space within grasping reach of a porridge ladle. Conrad didn't have anything like her speed and ended up jammed between sisters Volantis and Columba, both of whom were far more interested in breaking down this year's fleur-de-lis matches than they were in allowing him to eat his breakfast. Oh, and that was the other thing, the season. League fleur-de-lis had been well underway for months before the war called for suspension of games, mostly without the reigning champions, the Emerald Knights, in the roster. With Laurel Slaughter replacing Chevreuse after her exile last joyeux, the Knights had barely played a handful of games this season. Conrad knew that everything at the other end of the solar system was more important than a game with poles in a zero-G tank, but he mourned his old life, that other life where he was able to prevent Alec from doing stupid things and Chevreuse was on the ground in Paris to mitigate the Cardinal's more destructive schemes and the most adrenaline Conrad felt in any given week was in the tank, where he belonged. After the asteroid, as he recuperated at Chevreuse's new digs, they'd barely talked about the sport, except for that one night they got drunk together and bitched about every single member of the Zero League who wasn't them. At Bucks, Conrad managed to keep the vid screens from displaying any of this season's most recent games, which still screened on a high repeat rotation. Here at the convent in the fucking mountains, you couldn't escape it. Little known fact about this particular chapter of nuns, they were really into team joust. They had their own tank, their own Sankafoil teams, divided by age group. The uh, 60 plus silver tire irons were especially brutal. They'd watched every Zero League game past and present. They talked about fleur-de-lis, 
constantly. If sport was a religion, these nuns had their cake and ate it too. It no longer surprised Conrad that they'd taken him in with only an anonymous character recommendation from Chavers's office, had given him shelter despite the danger his presence might bring down on their peaceful community. The nuns of the convent of Carmeline thought that having a real-life professional fleur-de-lis player in their midst was the best thing that had happened to them in years. So, what was it like playing against the Dido demons? asked Sister Gemini from across the table. She at least leaned over and offered him a ladle of the hot herb porridge, while Sister Columba took pity on him and finally pushed the flagon of coffee in his direction. Conrad smiled weakly and filled his plate, pushing his hooded scarf back a little, not too far, to make eating more practical. Oh man, that game almost killed me. Yep, as long as he never ran out of sporting anecdotes, he and the nuns got on fine. After breakfast, Sister Ursa led them all in a rousing series of songs about starfields and the future of humanity. Sister Magellan was called up to lead a prayer for the United Royal Fleet and the casualties of war. Conrad shivered, and not from the chill of the stone and glass hall. Dana was out there. His friends among the guards and the musketeers were out there, most of them. Then there was Alec. The prince consort was supposed to be safe on Luna Palais playing secret baby daddy. But what were the actual odds he was going to be safe in a time of war? As Sister Magellan's prayer came to a rousing finale, there was a knock on the big double doors at the far end of the Hall of Sharing, the doors that led directly to the mountain path. Conrad tensed, remembering all over again that an alien assassin might have a good reason to hunt him down here. But when the nuns levered their heavy doors open, it was a woman who collapsed through them in the torn remains of a flight suit. For one confused moment, Conrad thought it was Dana. The same warm brown tones to her skin, the shaven head, the clenched fists. But this woman was taller and shaped differently. Her face, messy with blood and plasma burn, was broader than that of Dana. The sisters came forward to help the woman. Some of them gasped as the sleeve of her flight suit came away completely revealing tangled tattoos all the way up her arm. A fleur-de-lis pattern blended into a star field, familiar because it reflected the tattoos that every sister of Carmeline wore on her limbs. Their religious robes were designed to slide back and reveal the sacred patterns to each other, though Conrad had only seen the nuns do it once or twice for formal ceremonies. It was too damned cold in the mountains to flash wrists and ankles if you didn't have to. Also, it was too cold to make your way up a snowy staircase on a mountainside in a ripped flight suit and ungloved hands. The poor woman was a wreck. She's one of us, Sister Magellan said. Conrad, help us get her to the Medibay. Well, he was the muscle around here. Him and Sister Volantis, who could bench press three of him. Volantis was already moving ahead, shoving open doors and clearing the way. 
Conrad scooped the burned, half-frozen woman into his arms, and she nestled into him as if seeking comfort. Her fleur-de-lis tattoos ran all the way up her throat, he noticed. In his head, he composed a text to Dana, even as he carried the woman to the medilab, to have her wounds seen to. Hey babe, today I played it being an actual knight, with chivalry and everything. A text he would never send, because after the single message he had got through to Chevreuse when he was on the run, and the location she sent back to him, he had destroyed his comms. Flirting with Dana was going to have to wait until this milord business was over with, and she came to rescue him. Dana was worth the wait. "'What's your name, dearie?' Sister Ursa asked, as Conrad laid the woman on a bed. "'Don't worry, we'll get you fixed up in no time.' The woman's eyes opened wide as if startled, and Conrad saw that her eyes were grey, an odd combination with her deep brown skin. "'I seek refuge,' she gasped. "'That's what we're here for, ducks,' said the elderly nun, patting the woman's hand. Conrad stepped back, wanting to get out of their way but he could not take his eyes off the stranger in the bed. There was something about her that was so familiar, though he could have sworn he'd never seen her before in his life. Sister Snow, breathed the patient, as the first medipatch buzzed across her burnt face. My name is Sister Snow. I need you to help me. She wasn't looking at any of the star nuns as she said those words. She was looking directly at Conrad. Thanks for listening to Sheep Might Fly. This podcast was recorded on Palawar land. I acknowledge and pay respect to the Tasmanian Aboriginal people as the traditional owners and continuing custodians of Lutruita, Tasmania. Sheep Might Fly is produced and edited by Andrew Finch. You can sign up to my author newsletter for updates, follow me on Twitter at TansyRR, and if you like this podcast, consider supporting me at Patreon, where you can receive all kinds of bonus rewards, early ebooks, and exclusive stories for a small monthly pledge. See you next week.